There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, we have the privilege of having a brief Bible study together. Now, each Saturday, we are offering on the weekend pulpit a full-length Bible message that's been given recently in some local church or gospel event. And my prayer is that God will use the Word of God to encourage you in a very special way today. This particular series of messages is very special and dear to my heart because it comes from my life book, the book of Philippians, the book of Christian joy, where the Lord says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice. And the Lord used these Bible messages to help us all learn to enjoy the journey. Great to see all of you tonight. What a wonderful crowd on a Sunday night. And I thank you for being here. I enjoyed myself so much with your church family this morning. Been thinking about it all day, how, how refreshing it is to see people not only in church, but actually happy about being in church. That's good, isn't it? And uh, to, to hear the testimonies tonight and the goodness of God in the life of this church over these last nine years, that's a wonderful thing. You're a part of something truly great. And a matter of fact, there's nothing more important going on in any town in America than what God is doing in that town. And so you're a part of something just really out of this world, literally. It's eternal. And I'm praying that it'll go on and on and on. Well, we've had a big day today, and they've got food for us afterwards tonight. Is that right? That'll help the preacher preach shorter, I promise you. <laughs> How many of you took your nap today? Be honest. How many of you got your nap? How many of you need to get one while I'm preaching? Would you raise your hand, please? <laughs> then these people are excused, all right? Yeah, go ahead and take it. Have, have at it. I feel that way myself right now, I think. I'm not going to preach to you long tonight, but I'm excited about the truth that God's led us to. I want you to open the Word of God with me to the book of Philippians again. And we come tonight to Philippians chapter number 2. Philippians chapter 2. I said to you this morning that this book of the Bible is my favorite book. It's a short book. It's only four chapters long. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, I made up my mind I was going to try to memorize this book of the Bible. And uh, I, I worked at it. I really worked at it. I don't know that I could just stand up here and quote it for you right now, uh, but I need to refresh on it a little bit, I think. Uh, but it, it flows. It really does. It flows. It's a great book to memorize, and it's a great book to meditate on because it brings you to the source of true joy, which is Jesus Christ. And honestly, people that don't know the Lord don't know what I'm talking about. Until you have truly known Christ, and the difference he makes in your heart, you cannot explain it, and there is nothing to substitute for it, nothing. Now, we've been walking through Philippians, and we've come through Philippians chapter 1, and now we've come to Philippians chapter 2. And I noticed today, just my own time looking at it again, how, how stark the contrast is, at least from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2, because chapter 1 ends on a battlefield, literally. It's the spiritual warfare. He talks about as having to stand and strive together for the faith of the gospel. In verse 28, you've got adversaries. In verse 29, you've got suffering. In verse 30, you've got conflict. And somebody says, heaven help us. This is all we've got, spiritual battles? Oh, no. Well, the battle may be on the outside, but there's peace on the inside. 
Because when you come to chapter 2, verse 1, notice here the peace. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. And by the way, that, that verse is an interesting verse. Did you notice the four innies? Any, 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 any. Let me ask you a question. How many of you can say God's done any good thing for you? Any mercy? Any grace? Any love? Any peace? Oh, yes. Any forgiveness? Any answer to prayer? Oh, yes. Any fellowship? And I want to say, oh, yeah, I can check all those boxes. And God says if God's been that good to you, it ought to make a difference in the way you live your life. Look at verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And somebody's going to say, that's not natural, preacher. No, it's not. It's supernatural. It's not human, it's divine. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robber to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I'm not preaching on this tonight, but I cannot just breeze over it. I think those verses summarize everything in the gospel records. If you want the gospel in a nutshell, here's what it is. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless Holy One, the only begotten of the Heavenly Father, humbled Himself and took on human flesh. He did not cease being God. No, no. He simply robed His deity with humanity. He took on flesh. And he's not 50% man and 50% God. He's 100% man and 100% God. And he's the perfection of both. The only sinless man that ever walked the earth and the sinless son of God himself. And why did he come? To live, to give a good example, to teach a good lesson, to give some little Confucius statements that people want to give and say, here, this will make your life a little better. No, no, he didn't come to make your life a little better here. He came to make sure that you can have an eternity with him. Not simply be a little better now and then go to hell forever. The Bible says when he came, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. How many of you are glad the story doesn't stop there? Verse 9, wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And let me just tell you something, that's going to happen. As surely as his humbling happened, his exalting you're going to see. As surely as he died for your sins someday, you're going to see every knee bow and hear every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And every dawn on you, you'll see Hitler on his knees. And every prime minister and president, every dictator, every celebrity that scoffs at the name of God, 
Every person that curses and swears and uses the name of Jesus Christ as a byword, every last one of them will kneel at nail-pierced feet and confess that he truly is who he said he is. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus Christ is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And I want to tell you, he's no liar. He was no lunatic. He is the Lord God. And someday everyone will confess it. By the way, you either confess it now or you confess it later, but if you wait till later, you've waited too late. Now look at verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean we work to be saved. Notice the words work out. It means he puts it in, you work it out. It's the gift of God to you, but it makes a difference in the way you live your life. And one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now, there's so much truth in this chapter, honestly, that I'm going to reserve myself tonight to one word. <laughs> I'm preaching a one-word sermon. How many of you would like to hear a one-word sermon? Some of you are saying, praise the Lord, we came on the right night. Don't get too excited because it's going to take me a few minutes to explain the word. It's a word that's used twice, Philippians chapter 2. In fact, it is a word that has changed my own life. It is a word that the entire passage revolves around. It's found in verse 3 and again in verse 4. Would you mark it, please, in your Bible? In verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem, what's the word? other better than themselves and then in verse 4 look not every man on his own things but every man also on the things of what others can I tell you why Jesus came for others do you understand that the creator God of the universe when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden could have wiped man off the map do you understand that at any moment the corridors of history and the centuries of time, God could have said, that's enough. Stamped us out like a bug. That's what I would have done if I was God. Aren't you glad I'm not God? I'm glad you're not God too. Because God said, no. No, I can go on being God without them, but they'll perish without me. And the heart of our God was always a heart for others. When Jesus came, what did he do? Did he come to, to build some great empire, to gather a following? Did he, did he come to gather lots of riches and make himself the wealthiest man alive? Did he, did he come to, to be the leader of the Roman Empire or to deliver Israel from Rome's oppression? No, 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 and no. He came to seek and save that which was lost. In a word, in a word, he came for others. When a person gets the mind of Christ, the mark of Christ's mind, God's heart being in them, is that, watch this please, they stop thinking so much about themselves and they stop thinking highly of themselves and suddenly they start thinking about others. When I was just a boy, I'm seeing all these children sitting here. It's wonderful they're in church tonight with their families. It's great. When I was just a boy, somebody taught me the little acrostic for joy. You remember that Philippians is the book of Christian what? Joy. And the little acrostic I learned as just a boy, J-O-Y, is that Jesus must be first. I believe that. He is the preeminent one. In fact, he's not top of the list. He's on a list all by himself. 
Christ must be in His rightful place in our life if you want the joy of the Lord. And then they said, after Jesus, then you've got others, and then why is yourself? The reality is most of us get those all mixed up all the time. Because for most people, they spend most of their life thinking only of themselves. Long ago, someone wrote the little poem, Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be, help me to live for others that I might live like thee. Help me in all the work I do to ever be sincere and true and know that all I do for you must needs be done for others. Some facetious person came back and rewrote the first verse and they said, others, Lord, yes, others, let this their motto be. Let others live for others so all may live for me. That's how most people live. And the reality is we live in a very selfish world, a very selfish world. And in fact, that's not only true in the world, that's often true in churches. And so many people think that the entire world revolves around their needs and around what they want and their plans. And I want to say to you tonight that if real revival ever comes, God changes the way you think. When people say they want revival, I wonder if they really want revival. Most of the time when people say they want revival, what they mean by that is they want everything to stay the same. They want their, their country to be kept the same. They want certain things not to change. Let me just let you in a little spiritual secret from the Word of God. When revival comes, everything changes. Because the Lord starts turning over things in our life and saying, this is not like me. This, this doesn't please me. This doesn't honor me. And one of the things that He changes is He changes our heart and mind towards others. I want to walk you through this chapter quickly, but I'm going to do something a little different tonight, and I want you to participate, all right? I want you to take out something to write with and something to write on. So get your pen handy, and you can use the bulletin, or you can use a scrap piece of paper, whatever you want to write. But while I'm speaking tonight, you may write down what I say, these two or three little thoughts, but I want you to do something more than that. Whether you write down my outline or not, I'm not so concerned about that, but I want you to do this. We're going to make an others list tonight. Now listen to me. You're going to do something with the list when I finish preaching tonight. So if you don't have a list, you're going to be hurting, let me tell you. So make the list. Then I'm going to challenge you to do something with the list when we leave here tonight, this week. Across the top of your paper, I'd like for you to write in big, bold boxcar letters the word others. You might underline it two or three times. This is your others list. And by the way, it's your list. You're not going to give it to me or show it to me. I'm not even going to know the people you write down. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you while I'm preaching, and we're walking through the Scriptures tonight, I'm going to ask you to write down the names of people that God brings to your mind. Because here's what I know. In the next few brief moments while I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit of God is going to be speaking in a way that I cannot. And one of the things He's going to do is He's going to apply the truth to your life, and He's going to bring somebody's face and somebody's name to your mind. And when He does, I want you to know that's your divine assignment. That is one of the others that God has for you to minister to. You see, if we limit the work of God to what a guy like me does, stand up on Sunday preaching a sermon, I want you to know we have dead-ended the Christian faith. If all there is to it is we come into church and sit back and cross our arms and say, all right, preacher, try to keep me awake for the next 25 or 30 minutes, and we listen, even take good notes, I want you to know even that is selfish. Even that is self-centered. Years ago, I was preaching and teaching in Amman, Jordan. We were actually training a group of preachers to go back into Baghdad and start churches. And it was a fascinating trip. 
while I was there, the Jordanian pastor that was hosting us said one afternoon, I want to show you some things. And he drove us through the desert and showed us where the children of Israel marched and took us to Mount Nebo where Moses died looking over into the promised land. And uh, he, he showed us lots of things. And as the day wore on, at the end of the day, he took us to a beautiful body of water. It was gorgeous. And I remember walking down. The sun was setting. The water was just beautiful. And I bent over and I scooped some water up and I put it up to my mouth and spit it right back out. It wasn't just salty. It was bitter. And he started laughing, and he said, Welcome to the Dead Sea, Brother Pauly. He said, Everything in this body of water is dead. Then he said something I've never forgotten. It made an indelible impression on my heart and mind. He said, For years, the Jordan River upstream from here flowed continuously into the Dead Sea, which meant that living things were flowing into it all the time. He said, The problem was not that living things never flowed into it. The problem was that nothing ever flowed out of it. And then he made this statement, Life always becomes death when it's kept to itself. Now, I'm going to tell you why churches die. They start thinking it's all about them. I'm going to tell you why Christians die. They start thinking it's all about them, and pardon the term, they sit around in church and Sunday school and revival meetings for 40 years, soaking up all the teaching and preaching, thinking that's good enough, and they get more spiritually bloated all the time because they know lots of things, but they do nothing with it, and it dead ends with them, and we got a generation of Dead Sea Christians in our world today. And the thing that has to happen is we got to get out of ourselves and out of our comfort zone, out of our rut, Old Vance Havner said a rut's just a grave with both ends knocked out of it. That's right. It's death, and we've got to get to others. So here are the thoughts. Number one, would you write down, first of all, there are others that need to be considered. In the opening verses of Philippians chapter 2, he impresses this truth in our mind. He says, wait a minute. What about the needs of those around you? What about... What about the hurts of people near you? What about the faults of other people? Notice what he says in verse number 2. He says, Fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Might I say, I believe verse number 2 is a state of revival. If you can find yourself in verse number 2, you are in revival. Because one of the marks of real spiritual awakening is God's people stop fussing and fighting and feuding with one another, and suddenly... There's a spirit of unity and oneness, one mind and one accord. In the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost came with mighty power, do you know what one of the marks of that day was? The people were of one mind and of one accord. And I wonder, I wonder if there aren't some very good, sincere Christians that need to not only try to get right with God, but get right with one another. Others need to be considered. I was preaching Revival meeting a few months ago, and on the last night, we'd had a really special meeting. On the last night, I, I came in just in time for the service to start. I was driving, and I came in just as the service was about to begin. Everybody was in the building, large church. And there was one woman standing in the lobby of the church. She was standing there by herself. She was waiting on me. She had a bag in her hand. I came in. I was rushing, trying to get into the auditorium, and she said, Preacher, and she started crying. She said, I need to talk to you for a moment. She said, first of all, she said, I, I made you some banana nut bread. Well, that changed everything right there, let me tell you. The whole meeting got better at that moment. I knew it was going to be a good night, you know. And then she said to me, she said, last night in the middle of the message, she said, the Holy Spirit put his finger on something in my life. 
She said, you don't know me, and you don't know my situation, and you didn't know any of this. She said, but God knew. She said, last night in the middle of the message, God reminded me about my relationship with my sister. She said, my sister and I have not spoken for 20 years. 20 years. She said, we had a falling out. Some, something happened, and we just got angry at one another, and we just drifted apart. We hadn't spoken in 20 years. And she said, I've been praying that God would work in my life in a special way. She said, last night when I went to bed, she said, I couldn't sleep. She said, and I couldn't even really pray because I knew that I couldn't be right with God and wrong with her. She said, all night I wrestled with that. And she said, I got up this morning and finally said, you know, I'm not living like this anymore. I'm not going to waste another 20 years. I'm not wasting another day. She called her sister, and she, now she's not only weeping, now she's laughing. Tears of joy. And she said to me, I called my sister, and she said, we got everything clear, everything right today. She said, I just want to tell you, God's done something in my life. I'm going to tell you, when you start considering the needs of others, God opens heaven's blessing on your life. Look at verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. In our world today, everybody wants to talk about equality. We want equality. We want equality. Well, let me just tell you something. We are all equally sinners. How about that for equality? Every last stinking one of us. How many of you are sinners? Would you raise your hand big and high, big and high? And if your neighbor didn't raise their hand, ask him what's wrong with them, all right? Because we're all sinners, equally sinners. But one mark, when you get near God, you stop thinking more highly of you. And instead, you start thinking more highly of God. And when God is in His rightful place and you see what a little sinner you are, not deserving the mercy of God, suddenly, guess what? You start seeing everybody else different. You start seeing others through the lens of God's mercy and God's grace. And so now you're esteeming other even better than yourselves. He says in verse 4, Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Look over at verse number 21. He says, For all seek their own. Doesn't that sound like the world we live in? Everybody's after their own thing. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can, don't let anybody have it. It's all about us, my stuff. Even in our prayer life, let's just get down to business for a minute. Even in our prayers, listen to our, our prayers sometimes. We're always praying for us. When was the last time you wept for a lost soul? When was the last time you got out of bed in the middle of the night, got down on your knees and prayed for someone else, not just your own need? When was the last time you were as troubled for somebody else's burden and hurt as you are your own? When was the last time you fasted and prayed for others? Let me tell you, when you get God's heart for others, God will work in your heart and in theirs. He works on both ends. Number one, we must learn that others need to be considered. And if I might just say this before we move on, let me tell you where that starts. It starts at home. Let me meddle for a moment. Will you permit me to meddle just for 60 seconds? No one in this room is a better Christian than the Christian they are in the privacy of their own home. If I want to know what kind of Christian you are, I will not ask your pastor. If I want to know what kind of Christian you are, I'll ask your spouse and your children. If you want to know what kind of preacher I am, come to the church house. You want to know what kind of man I am, come to my house. I promise you, Tammy and Morgan and Lauren and Grant would be happy to tell you. It's a convicting thought, isn't it? Let me tell you where you start considering others. You don't consider others when you walk through the door and start acting spiritual to everybody and considering everybody here. No, no. It starts in your own home. This is the mind of Christ. And then it continues with the family of God, loving one another. And by the way, 
If you're visiting tonight, I don't know who's visiting and who's not, but if you're visiting tonight, you've seen a demonstration of what a real church is supposed to look like tonight. People loving one another and encouraging one another and testifying about the goodness of God, how it's ministered to their family. This is what a church is all about, and it's wonderful. And forever, this church ought to be known as a place where the love of God is so full that people are considering one another. Here's the second thought. Would you write it down? Number one, I said others need to be considered. Number two, others need to be converted. Why did Jesus come? He came to die, verse number 8. He came to be exalted, verse number 9. He came so that all would know who He is, verse number 10. He came so that every tongue would confess Him as Lord, verse number 11. Now look at how that affects us. Verse 12, wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both the will and do of his good pleasure. Now watch this. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless. The sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Look, do you see how he just moved from why Christ came to why we are here? Christ came so sinners would be saved, and we ought to live in such a way that they see the love of God in us, they see the Christ in us, and they desire the salvation we're talking about. Look at verse 16, holding forth the word of life. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. It's not just your pastor that holds forth the word of life. You hold forth the word of life every day as a Christian witness. If I might say it bluntly to you, it's not just about you. And it's not even just about this church. It's about people in this town who are going to die and go to hell without Jesus Christ if they don't meet somebody that truly knows the Lord. It was Gandhi that said, I would be a Christian if it were not for Christians. And I shudder to think of the people that will not go to heaven because the only Christian they ever met was somebody that was not a happy Christian and not considering others and the need of lost souls around them. Oh, dear Lord, forgive me of this. How busy and distracted we get. How many things we have going on. How, how we live our lives with our heads down, rushing through life. And Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white, all ready to harvest. A generation is perishing without the good news of Jesus Christ. And they're searching. They're looking for something. And I say to you tonight, others need to be converted. Look, I rejoice. I rejoice in the man that got saved this morning. He said to me, i got to work tonight, but I'm just rejoicing in the goodness of God to me today. I rejoice that he got saved. I rejoice in the young man that came to Christ. I rejoice in our sister that got assurance. But I want you to know, as wonderful as that is, that is the tip of the iceberg of souls in this area who need the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of them represents a thousand more just like them. And by the way, many of those will never come inside the walls of the building. We've got to go where they are. Old Gypsy Smith said God wrote five gospel records. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the believer. And then he said most people will never read the first four. He meant by that many a man who never reads this is reading you. And wondering if there's any reality to the salvation you say you have or any validity to the message of Jesus Christ. There are others that need to be converted. Do you remember how Philippi even got the gospel? One night in the middle of the night, the Apostle Paul had a vision. Do you remember the vision? It was a man of Macedonia saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. 
Paul obeyed. Goes into Macedonia to the first city of Philippi, and people start getting saved. Now, I want you to connect that to what he just wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter number 2. You know what he's saying to them? You needed help, and you got it. Now, there's a world out there that needs help. It's time for you to give it. Friends, Macedonia needed Jesus, but it must not stop with Macedonia. How many of you are glad you're going to heaven? I'm glad I'm going to heaven. Let me ask you a different question. Who are you taking with you? Who will be there because of you? This past week, I was home for a few days preaching locally. And Tuesday, my son and I went out running some errands. And my car died. <laughs> That's a great blessing, isn't it? A blessing. Drive down the road, just it gave up the ghost. I pulled into a parking lot, couldn't get it started. Honestly, I had lots of things to do and had lots of things on my mind. Grant was with me, and, and I was trying not to do it out loud, but under my breath, I was fussing. Man, I was fussing. I called tow truck, can't get it started. I need a tow. They took a long time getting there. Man, they took a long time getting there. It was hot. I'm fussing all the while, just fussing, fussing, fussing in my spirit. Fella pulls in, loads the car up. I get in the cab with him and take off. He looked at me and he said, do you believe in miracles? I said, pardon me? He said, do you believe in miracles? I said, well, I'm a Christian and a preacher. I think I believe in miracles. <laughs> he made some comment about something that happened that had to be a miracle. It had to be a miracle. He opened the door. I said to him, sir, I said, do you attend church anywhere? And he said, well, I've been attending a church a little bit. He said, we haven't gone much. He said, my mother-in-law just died. He said, we've had a pretty tough time here lately. Pulled into the place where we were to drop off my car, and we dropped it, and I said to my friend, 65 years old, retired coal miner, working part-time for a towing company. And I said to him, I said, let me ask you a different question. Do you know for sure if you died today you'd go to heaven? Without hesitation, nope. I said, you've never been saved. No, sir. Now, look, in my area, that's very rare. I don't know how it is in Savannah, Georgia, but in our area, everybody claims to be a Christian. He was just very blunt. No, no, don't know the Lord. I took a gospel piece out of my pocket and out of the car. and I said, let me show you some verses. We started walking through the verses together. And the whole time I'm going through it, yep, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm. He just agreed with everything. So much so that I thought, you know, he's not interested. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I'm, I'm giving him the gospel, and he's like too agreeable, you know, just too agreeable. And I thought, I'm going to get to the end. He's going to tell me I'm not interested, you know. I, I don't believe that's for me or, or uh, I, another time I'll do that. You've heard it all before. I got to the end and I said to him, I said, Galen, I said, Would you, wouldn't you like today to trust Jesus as your personal Savior and pray right here on this parking lot and invite Christ to come into your life? And he looked at me and he said, well, of course, why wouldn't I? <laughs> Never had anybody say that in all my life. Stunned me for a second. I said, I don't know. Why wouldn't you? I mean, sure, let's pray right now. And that man, 65 years old, bowed his head on that parking lot, called on God, 
forgive his sin. It was wonderful. Yeah, you're right. It was a miracle. It was a miracle of the grace of God. Anytime a sinner gets saved, it's a miracle of the grace of God. It's wonderful. And I thought of that as I came to these scriptures this week. He says in verse 14, look at verse 14. Oh, this is convicting. Do all things without what? Murmurings and disputings. And honestly, you know, when I read that verse, you know what I thought of? Me standing out there in the hot sun fussing. And all the while, God let that car die. God let that car die so that man could live. I believe that. God let that car break down so that soul could be saved. You know what we need to do? We need to stop thinking so much about our own stuff and start thinking more about others who need to be converted. So, anybody written down a name yet? I'm just curious. Anybody written down a name yet? Good. Write, write down a name or two. Who is it you need to consider right now at home or on the job or in your neighborhood or, or in the church? Who is it you need to consider? Who is it that needs to be converted? Do you know somebody that needs the Lord? Do you know somebody that's lost and without God? And if they die like they are, they're going to go to hell forever? Somebody's got to love them to Jesus. Somebody's got to get a burden for their soul. I tell you this, I don't want to... I don't want to stand before God someday and the Lord says, see all those people over there? Those are all people that were going to be saved and you never talked to them. Dear Lord, deliver us from that. Others. I'll give you one more and I'll be done. Would you write down number three? Others need to be cared for. Look at verse 17, the rest of the chapter. He says, yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. Now, that's easy to read. Let me just tell you, verse 17 is real easy to read and hard to live. Do you understand what he just said? He said, I just want you to know, if I got to die so your faith can grow, it'd be worth it. That's sacrifice. That's service right there. We live in such a comfortable, convenient Christianity. We pat ourselves on our back and think we've done God a service because we go to church three times a week, you know, like we did the Lord a favor this week. I'm going to tell you, we're going to be ashamed to stand before God someday and the martyrs step up to receive their crowns and we all have to step to the side and observe while people who've really given their lives to God and to the Lord's people are honored on that day. Paul is saying, I want to care for you. And then he goes on. Look at verse number 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus or Timothy shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Mark that word care in verse 20. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son of the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Paul said, I want to care for you. But he said, I can't get there right now, so I'm going to send Timothy, and he's going to care for you. I had this thought today. There's some people the preacher can't care for. Now, you've got a wonderful pastor. He's a shepherd. He has a shepherd's heart. I've been around him enough to know that even on this trip, been in the car. He was on the phone with people, church family folks, praying for and ill and that kind of thing. That's a shepherd's heart. That's a wonderful thing. But I want you to hear me now very carefully. This is a mark of a great church. The mark of a great church is that that church recognizes he's not the only minister. He's equipping everybody else to minister. 
You see, the reality is, if he's the only one caring for souls, if he's the only one caring for wayward sheep, if he's the only one caring for hurting hearts, then lots of people are going to fall through the cracks. No, everybody ought to say, by the grace of God, I'm going to start caring for those around me. Then he gives a third example of it. Did you ever notice this whole chapter goes together? It's all about others. Jesus lived for others. Paul lived for others. Timothy lived for others. And then look at the, the last one. Epaphroditus lived for others. Look at verse 25. He says, Yet I suppose it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger. And he that ministered to my wants, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that he had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh to death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I send him therefore the more carefully. When you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Look at verse 30. You want to talk about a life lived for others. This is it. Look at verse 30. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. I don't know a lot about Epaphroditus, but when I get to heaven, I want to shake his hand. I'm looking forward to it. You ever think about all the people going to meet in heaven someday? I want to shake Epaphroditus' hand and say thank you for having the spirit and mind of Christ. You know what he did? He cared for Paul when Paul was having a hard time and nobody was there for him. And on the other side, he went to the church at Philippi and he cared for them when Paul couldn't get to them. That's somebody that's sensitive to God and sensitive to the needs of those around him and says, I'm going to make it my business to care for those who have great needs. And I wonder. Are there those kind of people in this room tonight? I wonder, not have you done it, but will you do it? Are there others, people among us tonight? The reality is, most people live and die thinking it's all about them. Frankly, there's been a lot of church services. I don't remember what the preacher preached. Let's just be honest. Lots of services, I don't remember what the preacher preached. But you know what I remember about some of those services? Some saint of God putting their arm around me in an aisle and saying, I just want you to know, I've been praying for you. Ministering to me. Almost four years ago, we stepped out into evangelistic work. Numbers of you have asked about my family today, and I thank you for that. My wife and I, together on this, she travels with me as much as possible. Her name's Tammy. She's from Michigan. I married a Yankee, but the Lord forgave her and changed her life. We have three children, Morgan, Lauren, and Grant. They're all on board. They were just with me overseas in a meeting, and Grant just texted me before church, told me he was praying for me today. That meant a lot to me, 14 years old. I miss them, miss being with them. By God's grace, we're trying to minister to pastors and churches and as many people as possible. That's what God's given us to do. But I'm going to tell you what I've discovered in my travels, and we've been in lots of churches, hundreds of them now. I have discovered that the Lord has a way of using His people to encourage us. And sometimes at low ebb, a kind word, a prayer, has been exactly what I needed. I'm telling you, there is something about being in the family of God and living for others that this world does not understand, but God's people should. By this, Jesus said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples when you have love one for another. 
He didn't say by your buildings they'll know, by your, by your dress they'll know, by, by, your, by your standards they'll know. He said by your love they will know you belong to me. Because the love of God is shed abroad through your life. My dad has been pastoring the same church for almost 30 years. There's a certain time in that church. By the way, they, they supported this church when it started several years. I talked to him today. He, he was so thrilled, just so thrilled that I was here. He said, Terry's praying for you. They believe in this. But in the early days of that church in West Virginia, my dad faced a great battle. Churches go through battles sometimes. Frankly, the devil loves to poke his head up. I mean, if I could just give you a little piece of private counsel here to this church feminine, I would say this. Pray a hedge of protection around this church and pray that the Lord will keep the devil away because the devil loves for a crack to get his foot in the door. Church was going good. Lots of people were being saved. It was growing big time. In the midst of all that, a, a man, one man in the church, got out of sorts. Got out of sorts with the Lord, with my dad, and with others in the church. Got full of himself, and he became a mouthpiece for the enemy, frankly. Started gossiping, criticizing, tearing down. Gave my dad a really hard time. I was about maybe 14 or 15 years of age. Probably 15. It got ugly. My dad's a mild-mannered man, kind, gracious, gentle. I remember one night that man accosting my father on the parking lot after a church service because he didn't like his sermon that night, didn't like what he'd preached. And it was threatening him. And I'll never forget it. I got so angry. I got in the flesh, preacher. I really got in the flesh. I was in the car. I got out of the car, and I was going to beat him. I was going to whip him in Jesus' name, you know. <laughs> and my dad said to me, kind, he said, son, get in the car. He said, the Lord take care of all this. By the way, the Lord did. God knows how to take care of the devils. I never want to be on that side, I tell you that. But in the midst of all that, there was a man in our home church who was so full of God, so full of the love of God. I'll never forget it. His name was Neely Mills. Neely Mills was a World War II veteran. He was a tough guy. He was a Marine. and He was... He was just, he was something. Great big hands. I'll never forget that. He had a wood shop. He was a woodworker. And uh, he'd stand at the back door at every church service and open the door for people. That was his thing. He's opening the door for people. And if he said something about him being there, his standard answer was, typical military, he said, at my post of duty. I'm just at my post of duty. He just, that was his thing. He loved the Lord. He knew my dad was having a hard time. Our family was having a hard time. Now, you think about this. I had just started preaching. I was a teenage preacher, and I'm watching all this, you see, wondering, you know, what, what's going to happen here and, and what the future is and how my dad's going to respond and all that kind of thing. And I see this man full of, full of evil trying to cause problem and division and strife and contention, flesh. And in the midst of all that, this big, strong man full of God makes it his business to be an encourager. There was never a church service that that man did not speak to my dad, never. Many times I saw my dad preach with tears, and I knew. Others didn't even know all of it, but I knew his heart was broken. And at the end of the meeting, I'd see that great big old strapping fellow go up, give my dad a hug, and say, Preacher, we love you, and we're pulling for you. I'm praying for you. 
He encouraged my mother. He encouraged me and my sister. I don't know if I'd be in the Lord's work today. I don't know if I'd wanted to have been in the Lord's work if it hadn't been for a man like that. Now, you don't know Nita Mills. He's been in heaven for years, but every time I think about that man, I thank God for him. You know what he was? He was a Paul. He was a, a Timothy. He was an Epaphroditus. He was a man with the mind of Christ who lived for others. And because of it, God used him to make a difference in our church and in my life. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can help to pray for you in some definite way, please contact us. You may visit us online at enjoyingthejourney.org. I would love to hear from you today. I also hope you'll share this message with others who might also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, visit our YouTube channel. And most of all, remember this, tomorrow is the Lord's Day. Sunday is the first day of the week. And every Christian ought to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in their area this Sunday. Now, thank you so much for listening today to the Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss the Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday. May God bless you and your family and help you to enjoy the journey today.